I'm Paul Heron, and this is episode 26 of the Ani Isnin podcast. Today we celebrate the official release of both the print and digital versions of Trapeze, the Unexpurgated Diary of Ani Isnin, 1947-1955, available at Amazon and other booksellers around the world. This is, needless to say, a momentous addition to Ani Eastin's canon. It is the fifth unexpurgated diary to be released, with two more to follow. As editor of Trapeze, I want to let our listeners know what went into the diary and what didn't, and why. I have a philosophy about Ani Eastin's original handwritten diaries. They always contain a compelling, powerful, and in many cases, inspiring story. But the story is not always easily found. It is often a subterranean thread that must be identified in the midst of the clamor of countless daily events, people, asides, details, and correspondence. It can be deeply buried, and it takes a sort of psychological miner to find it, hold on to it, and follow it to its natural conclusion. The funny thing is, I first sensed this long before I ever saw the original diaries, beginning when I read the first four unexpurgated Neen diaries, edited by different people with differing philosophies. The first was Henry and June, edited by John Ferrone of Harcourt Brace Jovanovich in the mid-1980s. He was a visionary craftsman who could unravel, dissect, rearrange, reword, and purify Neen's text into best-selling material. In fact, he once said his model for editing was Neen herself in the first volume of the Diary of Ani East Neen, which distilled three years' worth of sprawling raw material into a concise volume that propelled her to fame in the 1960s. Ferone transformed the original 1931 and 32 diaries, which consisted of thousands of pages, into a fast-paced novel-like book of less than 300 pages. It was so well done that it was easily converted into a screenplay by Philip and Rose Kaufman for the 1990 feature film of the same title. Ferone allowed a minimal number of strong main characters and very few supporting ones, and the story was simple and uncluttered. It was the evolution of Neen as a sensual woman. The other diaries, Incest, Fire, and Nearer the Moon, were edited by Rupert Pohl, Neen's executor, and her former agent, Gunther Stuhlman. In these volumes, the scope is vast, the characters many, and the tangents plentiful. I believe one of the reasons they were relatively poor sellers was because, as one critic put it, they lacked pace and sometimes bordered on being boring. Gunther once told me that Rupert wanted every word Neen ever wrote to appear in print untouched. In my opinion, this is a noble cause, and I'm sure some scholars would prefer it, but it doesn't make for compelling reading, and for that reason, it doesn't sell. When I had the opportunity to edit what became Mirages, the first new diary in 17 years, my goal was to be somewhere in between the previous editing philosophies, to not leave it all in as Paul wanted, but to not drastically alter the text as Ferone had done. What the editing involved, first and foremost, was finding the story and then letting Neen tell it in her glorious prose. In Mirages, the story was Neen's struggle to adapt to America after a long absence in France, her excruciating battle to find artistic fulfillment, and the one man who could satisfy her sensual needs. 
Its natural conclusion was her introduction to Rupert Pohl in 1947. With trapeze, it's a different story altogether. As I just mentioned, at the end of Mirages, Neen meets the young, out-of-work actor and soon-to-be forest ranger Rupert Pohl. They almost immediately become lovers. When he asks her to join him in a cross-country trip at his 1932 Ford, she amazingly says yes. This is an incredible response because she is married to Hugo Geiler and in the middle of her first successes as a published writer in America. Yet she agrees to take off with Paul into the unknown. She somehow has to convince Geiler that she's traveling to California with a female friend and has to invent a reason why. She also has to convince Paul that she's about to divorce Geiler, that they have no sensual life, that she will soon be free none of which is true. The story of Trapeze is the outlandish concept of keeping her husband and lover unaware of each other and creating a lifestyle, as the title suggests, of swinging back and forth across the continent on a regular basis, all the while trying to nurture a writing career. How exactly was Neen able to pull it off? How is it possible to convince Hugh Geiler that she needed periodic trips to California for peace and quiet conducive to writing and to make Paul believe she had to return to New York where she worked for fictitious employers? What about her many friends? How did she explain her long absences? And who did she share her secret with? And most of all, how did she withstand the immense pressure of never mixing up her stories and lies necessary for this lifestyle? Trapeze answers all these questions. Over the years, I've noticed that some readers doubt that Geiler was actually unaware of Paul and vice versa, that neither of them were so naive or clueless to actually believe Neen's tall tales. These people, I have discovered during this diary, underestimate Neen's abilities. The CIA could learn from her. So could those who were about to be subjected to harsh interrogation. Even in the face of almost certain doom, Neen never blinked an eye, skipped a beat, or failed to invent the uninventable when circumstances called for it. A case in point. In 1952, Neen and Paul were planning to take a trip to Puerto Rico. Paul was to drive to Miami, and Neen was to fly down from New York and meet him. In the meantime, Geiler had a severe back injury that forced him to lie in traction at home. He had to be cared for around the clock, and Neen became his nurse, bathing him, buying him newspapers, pipe tobacco, cooking his favorite meals that had to be served in bed, doing countless errands to the point of exhaustion. Geiler, you see, could be a taskmaster, especially when ill. Everyone became a servant of one sort or another. In spite of all this, he did not improve, and his doctor ordered him to remain in traction for several weeks. Neen, sensing she would not get to Miami in time to meet Paul, began to create excuses for a delay. Her fake magazine job had given her a new assignment and so on. Paul, who was used to Neen making excuses, suddenly decided he would drive to New York himself, and he didn't tell her until he was already on his way. He sent a telegram saying, Arrive New York Friday night. Help your work. Have fun. Let's do our waiting together. Nowhere you can reach me, so can't say no. Cancel plane ticket and get money equivalent. 
Ning was in a panic. This is the one thing she had dreaded the most, the meeting of the two men. But she pulled herself together. She employed what she called her underground, friends who would help her deal with such dilemmas. Even her maid was employed. Between Nin and her loyal friends, she was miraculously able to have both men within a few blocks of each other and still keep each in the dark. And there are backstories in Trapeze as well. During the 1950s, Nin was unable to find anyone to publish her work, and those she worked with often ripped her off, accepting Geiler's money and then squandering it on other projects or failing to support the books once they were printed. Critics assailed her for her unconventional writing. Even her friends attacked her. And her divided life was hardly helpful when it came to sitting down and writing fiction. Some of her books were begun in one city in the company of one man, and then continued in another city or even country with another man, which naturally resulted in unconnected fragments that were often scrapped in utter frustration. Then there was Rupert Pohl's family, consisting of stepfather Lloyd Wright, the son of the famed architect, and Helen Taggart, Rupert's mother. Rupert was reluctant to introduce Neen to them, but as Neen says in Trapeze, Finally, I was presented at the court. Rupert believed I could win them. On Thursday nights, we would go to dinner and to quartet playing. Cocktails set them both off into complete irrationality. Lloyd's brilliance of mind, I believed at first, I could connect with until I discovered him insane. Sudden rages, rantings. Helen is psychotic, only hypocritically covered by her false goodness. Rupert is equally illogical, hostile, or else masochistic. Nightmare evenings. Rupert's mother jealous, petty, and mean, pressuring us to marry. Meanwhile, admitting that she had not been able to like me. At this I revolted, and revolt she did, even to the point of sending them a scathing letter about her unwanted presence, as she put it. One of the most fascinating things about Trapeze is how Neen perceived her two men. Each had traits that nourished her, and each had traits that repulsed her. With Paul, the sensual life was intense, explosive, and fulfilling, Neen says, His hands are rough from rough work, but he knows how to caress. He has that sure, determined, even touch of knowing hands. He is a decisive, unfumbling lover. We make love hungrily and nervously. The keenness of it is almost unbearable. The sharp, clear resonance of skin and blood and nerves. Erratically we bloom in a multitude of awakened cells, and the climax of pleasure is so prolonged, so far-reaching, that we both cry out. We hold on to each other as if to make the penetration permanent against all the separations demanded by life. But Paul's tendency to the bourgeois life, his petty fault-finding, his temper, his miserly habits, and his pointed anti-intellectualism were maddening. Neen says, Emotionally bound to Rupert, finding it wrenching to leave him, yet fully aware of the distress of the cramped life, irrationalities, caprices, and, I must name it, his selfishness. So you feel, Anais, emotionally bound to Rupert, but you are aware that he harms you. He refuses you a maid once a week, although you contribute as much to the household as he does. He demands a great deal of you. 
He wants everything his way. His neurosis causes you suffering. Dean could only tolerate life with Paul for a few weeks at a time and then felt compelled to flee to New York where Geiler provided Dean with everything Paul could not. Security, a maid, a bank account, luxury, culture, the care of doctors and analysts, a big life, as she put it. But Geiler's continual battles with self-doubt, reckless financial decisions, a fear of failure, and most of all, the physical repulsion Dean had for him had a similar effect as did the relationship with Paul. She could only tolerate Geiler for a few weeks at a time and fled to California when she couldn't take it any longer. In a sense, the trapeze was becoming more like a ping-pong table on which Dean was a ball being struck by the paddles of insufferable men. There are some interesting supporting cast members in Trapeze, one of whom is James Leo Hurley, the young writer Dean befriended on a visit to his college in 1947. Herlihy went on to fame with his novels, some of which were made into films, most notably Midnight Cowboy. Dean's early relationship with Herlihy was mutually supportive. Each wrote the other about their work, their writing theories, their plans, and it was almost the perfect friendship, uncomplicated by sex since Herlihy was homosexual. Jim, as Dean called him, not only was one of the key operatives in her underground, he actually cared for Geiler during his illness and wrote Neen insightful letters on Geiler's attitude and how he behaved when she was away, opening her eyes to the reality of her New York husband in a way no one else could. Herlihy could also articulate the dynamics between Neen and her two men honestly and objectively. His contribution to trapeze is, without a doubt, clarity. For example, he writes to Neen in 1952 when he was caring for Geiler in traction, while Neen was with Pohl in California in feeling guilty about her choice. Hurley says, I have enough objectivity in this situation of helping Hugo to last for both of us, and I'll say nothing now except this. I see very clearly that nothing you can possibly do will save Hugo from unhappiness, whether you act out of guilt, love, pity, or whatever. You must live your life and free yourself, and I have never been more certain of anything than this. You have absolutely no cause for feeling guilty. When you feel like that and act out of it, you are responding to legendary moralities and not to reality. You are now a big girl and are maturing. It's time to leave home. Naturally, Papa is unhappy, but this is not your fault. I love you so much, Anais, and I have observed for a long time the fact that you are tender, conscientious, kind, and loving by nature. But the Catholic part of it is atrocious. Please, for Christ's sake, take care of your duty to yourself, just as once. And whether or not you feel called upon to return to New York sooner, that's up to you. But do not do it out of a sense of guilt and obligation. You have no debts here. Also, it may come as a shock to you and perhaps puncture slightly your ego, but Hugo is doing quite well without you now. What he needs is deluxe service and companionship, and frankly, Anais, you're a damn fool to give up any more of your time and energy and devotion to what he can either learn to cultivate in others or buy. And when Neen felt sorry for herself for the lack of acceptance her work was receiving, Hurley he was there to bolster her. In a 1954 letter, 
he gives her some tough love. Now, goddamn you, listen to me. You give your manuscript to a reader with one eye closed and listen to him more than to me. We will crank the book off the press by hand if necessary. I hereby vow that I will work with you at publishing this one word at a time if it takes a year, and I am not badgering you into writing the rest of it. I know that it can take from six weeks to six years. I don't really care when. I only want to be reassured. I want to know that when the time comes, you will listen only to people with both eyes open. Assure me of this, and I will leave you the hell alone, as they say, okay? I repeat, this is not pressure about now. It is a feeble attempt at exorcism. You have no room inside you for their demons, only for your own. And if you accept the world's demons, they will copulate with your own, and you will be besieged from a nation of monsters and never be rid of them. Now get with it, honey. Get with it. So, Trapeze is out after a four-year effort to put it together. I hope you will savor Ani Eastneen's words as much as I have. To order Trapeze in either hardcover or digital versions, visit Amazon.com or www.skybluepress.com. This has been the Ani Eastneen Podcast. Thanks for listening. Until the next time.